few years ago, we took a little, our family took a little vacation to Washington, D.C. We went down there for, oh, I don't know, maybe three days. <clears throat> we did, you know what you do when you go to Washington, D.C., checked out some of the sites, the history, visited some of the museums. And for Anna and I, our favorite one was the National Gallery, where, where all the art is. Now, I'm I can appreciate art, but I'm not any connoisseur by any means, uh, but I can appreciate the skill and, and the craftsmanship that goes into some of those sculptures and some of those paintings. And so we go in, we're looking around, and we made our way into uh, a couple rooms where it was the Impressionists from France, from, from Dutch uh, Impressionists, and begin looking around. And I have to say, for Anna and I, it just, it totally arrested our attention. We were mesmerized by just sort of the simplicity and at the same time, the detail and the complexity and the beauty and the color of all these paintings. We were almost surprised how sort of we were just affected by it. But we had three little kids, and so while we could have spent all day in there, we just spent a few moments looking around. The kids, they weren't as uh, mesmerized and were looking to do something different, so we moved on. We spent another day, went back home, and on the way home, we were talking about the paintings that, that we saw, and there were some that I spent a little more time looking at because Anna was with the kids or vice versa, and we found as we tried to explain just how beautiful the, the painting was, how it had kind of grasped us, and it was nearly impossible to really paint the picture and get the person to feel about that picture how we felt looking at it. You just couldn't quite describe it. You get the sense that Mark is in that same situation this morning. As he writes for us an eyewitness account that Peter gave him of the transfiguration, of this brilliant and beautiful moment that took place, that, that Mark kind of lays out for us in the simplest of terms. And even in the simplest of terms, it's awe-inspiring. And yet I think we're only beginning to sort of scratch the surface, beginning to grasp the beauty, the glory of our Jesus Christ. In verse 2, you heard it read for you, it begins, and after six days... It, this is a little different for Mark to put this sort of connection in his gospel. As we've seen, he just sort of jumps from event to event, typically. But here, he gives us a, a little bit of a timeline, chronological, that after six days, and so it's pointing us backwards to let us know, okay, what's about to happen connects to something in the past. It, it connects to what we saw last week, and that is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. It, it, it connects us back to that confession. And what follows is as soon as Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, we see, yes, with that comes a divine benediction, a blessing. We're told, blessed are you, Peter, for it is God who's revealed this to you. But with not only a benediction also comes a claim on his life, this call to discipleship. And so Jesus begins to explain, here is what true messiahship looks like. It's not just glory and splendor. Here's what it looks like. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must die. And I will be raised again. And he goes, oh, by the way, just so you know, your discipleship reflects my messiahship. It's going to be marked by humility and submission and self-sacrifice and suffering and death. And so there is this bit of confusion that we see from the... <clears throat> 
from the disciples for sure. How, how is this making sense? But right at the end of chapter 8, there's a little hint that it's not just suffering, it's not just shame, it's not just rejection, but there's two sides of discipleship. There is also glory. There is also reward. Because there's not just death, but there is life. There's not just losing, but there is gaining. There is not just humiliation, there is exaltation. And we see it as Jesus says, I will raise from the dead. And then we move into chapter 9, verse 1, and he gives us a little bit more of that foretaste. And he tells them, some of you, actually, you won't even taste death till you see the kingdom in power. And initially we might think, well, is he talking about the second coming? Well, that can't be the case because there's no disciple who is still, none of the 12, still alive waiting the coming of Christ. So what is it looking forward to? We say, I think it's looking forward to the resurrection, that they will see Jesus in the beginning of his exaltation. If he is experiencing humiliation in his incarnation and, and suffering and death, they will get to see him experience in his exaltation, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his session at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so he says, some of you will see this glory looking forward to it looking for the resurrection, and yet I think what we have right here in the transfiguration is a little bit of a foretaste of that glory. Just a little picture that is needed. Because you see, for discipleship, we really need both. We really need to have a category for suffering and a category for glory. Because if it's just all suffering, if it's just all hardship, if it's just all counting the cost, you won't endure. It won't be worth it to not live for the here and the now. It won't be worth it to die to self, to count Christ, to count others as more important to ourselves, to, to reject the narrative of our culture. And so there must be glory. But if, it, if discipleship is all glory at the same time, then you're going to be surprised and overwhelmed and confused and quickly defeated when you realize the road of discipleship in this age is difficult and is marked by submission and self-sacrifice. And so we'll get a picture of both here. The other thing that it, uh, is happening here, as Mark refers back to the six days, is that it is pointing us even further back into Scripture into a, a very similar story that Mark kind of mirrors our story that we're reading today off of, one that was foreshadowed what is taking place here, all the way back in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, the law has just been given and, and God is calling Moses and the 70 elders and, and the three sort of inner circle around Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu. He's calling them up onto Mount Sinai and there he's going to give them the tablet, the Ten Commandments. And so he calls this Moses and this inner circle of three up onto the mountain, just like we will see in our passage today happens with Jesus in the inner circle of disciples. And as Moses goes up on the mountain, there he is, and, and they say, okay, now you go with Joshua a little further. And as they come, they encounter, it says, the God of Israel. They see the God of Israel. Now, we don't know exactly how, but in some veiled sense, they see the God of Israel. And what they say, the text tells us, is they see his reflected glory off of the pavement or the beat-down path around him. 
That whatever this veiled picture of the glory of God is, you see his glory reflected and it's bright like sapphire, enough that their faces light up. And it says that they remain there for six days. The cloud of the Lord descends. The cloud of the Lord always referring to the presence of God. That cloud that, that led the people of God that settled upon the tabernacle. The cloud of the Lord descends upon Moses and Joshua there for six days as they behold his glory. And so it is with these sort of two ideas in our mind, looking back to what we've seen with Moses and the revelation of God's glory reflected there in the earth, on the pavement. And then looking immediately back to this call to discipleship and that it includes suffering and glory. And from there we jump right in. There's five things about the glory of Christ in this transfiguration that I want to highlight. The first is the unveiling. So just beginning in verse 2, it says, After six, six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before him. Literally, the, the word there is metamorphosis. He was transformed before them. But you're seeing it's, it's not a transformation that Jesus inner person or Jesus character or Jesus nature is changing in any sense. What, what you see in this transformation is that a veil, the veil of humanity so to say, is lifted so that the outward appearance, what they are beholding in Jesus actually matches his nature. That's the transformation is, is the veil of humanity being lifted and they are beholding divinity. They are beholding the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so secondly, we see the unveiling. Secondly, then we see the clothes. Verse 3, it says, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. As a result of his transformation, his clothes, his whole appearance, everything about him is radiating. It is brilliant, is dazzling. And you can see Mark, he doesn't know exactly, just like, it's nothing like ever you've seen. It's better than any bleach, it's better than anything you've ever seen. When I was in college and seminary time, it was about the time the Lord of the Rings movies were coming out. I was just talking about this with somebody. And somehow I didn't pay that much attention to those movies at first, so I wasn't really, I mean, I knew the books, but I wasn't really clued into the movies we're in seminary, it's winter break, so we're, we got Christmas break from classes, and a couple of other students who were on break said, hey, let's go to the theater and watch the movie. It was, in winter, there's like an inch and a half of snow in Virginia Beach, which for Virginia Beach means it completely shut down, everyone got like six gallons of milk, 200 rolls of toilet paper to last them through the day um, before the snow melted. So anyway, there's no one out, there's nothing happening, so we just decided, okay, we'll go. We went to one of those really early showings, like a 10 a.m. type showing. So we go to this theater, inch and a half snow on the ground, we go in, I don't know what to expect, and that stupid movie is like five hours long. Oh, it's so long. You already feel weird that you're at a movie at 10 a.m. and you're an adult. Um, <clears throat> so we're sitting in there, and that movie's just going on and on and on. Finally, it ends. We leave the theater and there is a little exit door, not the main exit, but a little exit door to outside, right beside the theater where we were at. And I will not forget opening that door to go out after five hours sitting in that theater. It's the middle of the afternoon. The sun is so bright. 
There's no one out, but there's like an inch of that like crusty snow now, the snow coming, and it almost knocked you back. It, it was just, you could not look at it. it. It was, you had to shut your eyes and you're like, what am I doing with my life in this theater in the morning? And, and it's bright and sunny and, and you're coming out. And that's sort of overwhelming brightness. That's what pops into my mind when I, Mark gives this description. They look and you could tell they're overwhelmed by it. They, don't, they can't really comprehend it all. It's brilliant. It's overwhelming. And you see... The glory, the brilliance here, if you go back to Exodus 24, it was the ground, the pavement, just reflected the glory of God. Jesus isn't just simply, you know, reflecting, like the the light's just bouncing off him. It's emanating from him. He is the source of that brightness and that light and that glory. And in that moment, as they get this little unveiled look, God is teaching them. Jesus is teaching the disciples in that moment that the glory of God is dwelling in the person of Jesus Christ. This is God in human form. Not just a reflection, but it emanates from him. Next thing you see is the witnesses. Verse 4 says, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus Peter didn't say what they were saying but they're talking with Jesus here you have both Moses and Elijah they're, they're precursors to the coming of Christ one Moses a type of Christ a deliverer we, we've already sort of thought about him as we're we're looking back at Exodus 24 and his story and so here is the deliverer one who will come after Elijah we'll look at in a minute because he comes back up at the end of our text But Moses, Elijah, precursors, figures, prophets, foretelling the coming of God. Listen to Deuteronomy 18. Moses says in verse uh, 18, or verse 15, sorry, of Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And he goes on. You'll notice again. In a little bit, when God speaks about his son, he's going to give it a command to his disciples. Listen to him. This is that prophet that Moses was foretelling. And so the appearance of Moses and the appearance of Elijah here is to serve as sort of a witness that this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been talking about. He has come. It's very interesting with Peter. We see Peter, James, and John, a couple things. They're terrified. They're terrified at the brilliance and the beauty of Jesus Christ, and, and they don't have total control of their faculties. And so Peter does what a lot of us do when we don't know what to say or do. We just start talking confidently anyways. <laughs> and so he makes this offer. In verse 5, Peter said, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. That's like tabernacles or temples. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, Mark's comment, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I think what you see two things, it's the glory of God is here. This is how the people of God has acted. For God to dwell in their presence, he does so in some veiled sense, whether it's a temple or the tabernacle. That's how God is among them. That's how God is in their midst. 
People have always organized their life around the temple, around the tabernacle. That's how they journey through the wilderness. That's how their life is structured. And so the glory of God here is revealed, and and Peter, terrified, not sure what to do, except the glory of God is here. We need to build a temple. We need something to house this glory. And also partly because he's terrified, they need the walls. They need something that, that will shelter them from the raw presence of God. And so he offers to build these temples. And I think, I don't hold it against Peter. In the the moment he's overwhelmed and in the brightness and not thinking totally clearly, he's like, let's just build one for Moses and let's build one for Elijah. And and how are we going to do this? You know, I think before we move on, it's just important to point out, generally our view of Christ is never high enough. Peter's response, it is good that we are here. This is what we need to see, but this is terrifying. Do we have any sort of response, any sort of view of Christ, whereas he is altogether necessary, but he is also terrifying? We sing that hymn pretty often here that starts, how sweet and awful is the place with Christ within her doors. We have this, we can have a view of like the Old Testament God was powerful and, and acted and, and, you know, that was a terrifying God. Thankfully, we have sort of a docile, domesticated, warm and cozy Jesus in the New Testament. And yes, Christ is affectionate. Christ is pictured as mother hen even at times. But, but he is brilliant and dazzling and terrifying. We don't get to create a little Jesus that we are comfortable with that has no claim upon our lives. That's what we need in the midst of suffering is not just me telling you, hey, try harder. It's to have this picture of of Christ, that, that he would be high and lifted up, that he would be exalted, that he would be worthy of bringing fear, of bringing awe, of bringing worship, that we have to draw near our, our crisis is much more glorified and awe-inspiring than we tend to allow for him to be when we gather together and we think about him. And the transfiguration helps us see that as the glory of God emanates from him. I've used this illustration one time before. I really just use it to brag on myself that I read Moby Dick. But anyways, I was listening to that uh, that book, that audio book, and my mind was not engaged the whole time, I'll I'll be honest. But you come to this one section, and there's a whole chapter in there, it's called The Whiteness of the Whale. And the narrator in the audio book is taking Melville's words, and it's just minute after minute after minute of him talking about the whiteness of the whale, that it is both revealing and terrifying, that, that it's terrible and pure, that it's sort of unknowable, and yet at the same time all revealing. That it's blinding and illuminating. And he goes on and on with all of these features about the whiteness of the whale. And as a preacher, uh, you're getting all giddy. I don't, know, I don't know if I can get giddy. But if I get giddy, it, it would be listening to this thing. And this will be a great sermon illustration. The holiness of God. Of the brilliance just shining forth and in the majesty and that it is blinding and yet illuminating it is pure and it is terrible that is our God 
He's not little. So we continue. Fourth thing we see here in this revelation is the cloud. Verse 7, and the cloud overshadowed them. A symbol of God's presence. The, the word for glory is a similar word for weight. There's like a feel, a weight, a heaviness to the presence and glory of God. And that cloud is like that. It, it surrounds them. The same cloud that overshadowed Moses as he stood on the mountain. The, the weight of God's glory comes and it rests upon them. And in the midst we see the fifth thing and that is the voice. They hear a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This is my beloved son, listen to him. I think there's two things taking place here, an encouragement from the father to the son and a word of encouragement and instruction then to the disciples as well. He's saying, this is my son. This is my beloved son. This is God in flesh. Now, listen to him. <laughs> Hear what he has to say. You know, when we're going through Mark, you realize Jesus is speaking to us in these Gospels. He, he's speaking to us. And God the Father would look at the disciples, he would look at us and say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Hear what he has to say. Mark is full of that, that we have ears to hear and, and having ears, we would hear, we would listen to what the Lord has to say. Scripture tells us that this is God's word to us. Spirit whispers to us off the pages. Amos, the prophet, has a beautiful illustration where he talks about the word of God going forward and the lion roars when the word of God is spoken, when the word of God goes forward. The lion is roaring off these pages. Listen to them. How easy it is to ignore them, to shelve them, to look everywhere else for entertainment, to give our attention and focus to everything else except the word of God where the lion roars, where the spirit whispers, where God would look at his disciples and say, this is Jesus, listen to him. So he encourages them in that moment. I think it's an encouragement to the son because he's already encouraged us on this way at the baptism he says the same thing. This is my beloved son. When Jesus experiences baptism, I think it's chapter 1 or chapter 2 of Mark, and he's inaugurated for his ministry. And here he speaks it again, God the Father does. And I think it's an encouragement because a time is coming not long from this moment where God will be silent. Where Jesus will cry out to his Father up on the cross, and the Father will turn his face away, and he will be silent. And so in his humanity, he's encouraging his son right now, this is the plan. This is salvation. This is victory. Because on the cross, he will be silent to his son. Then verse 8. <clears throat> We've seen this vision, and I, I think verse 8 is very powerful. And suddenly, all of a sudden, looking around, they no longer saw anyone. It's just them and Jesus only. Moses and Elijah did their jobs. They were the forerunners. They, they were proclaiming the Messiah is coming. And now when they look, Moses, Elijah, they've faded to black. It's all about Christ. It is all about Jesus. 
He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus says, this is my son. You don't need a tabernacle, a temple. What Mark is doing is his, in this transfiguration is Christology is, is getting a lot like John. That the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is my son. He has come. I am tabernacled among you in my son. You don't need Moses. You don't need Elijah. They have done their job. You don't need to build a temple and a tabernacle for God's glory to come in because my glory is here in human form. It is them and Jesus. Well, Peter, the disciples, I'm sure, overwhelmed in the moment, still not all of it sinking in what has taken place here, and they start making their way down the mountain in verse 9. Jesus charges them to not tell anybody about what they've seen. This time he adds a little clause to it, though, until after the resurrection. Until after the resurrection, they will have a great commission. But for now, don't tell anyone about this till after the resurrection. Why? Because the son still has to suffer and still has to die. So the disciples agree to it. They're they're not going to say anything, but they're confused on the matter. Verse 10, so they kept the matter themselves, but questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. See, they have a category for resurrection and restoration. These Jewish disciples would understand that the Messiah comes... And then there will be resurrection. But for them, the resurrection is like restoration, renewal of Israel. He's going to restore and reestablish this nation. Restore, establish with, with power and might. What is the death that we're talking about here? And so they ask a question. Verse 11, they ask him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? That first, Elijah must come. It's an honest question. You go to Malachi. Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. As it talks about the Messiah coming, he said, but first a prophet will come. Elijah will come. And he will declare. He will make way for this prophet to come. And, and he will establish his kingdom. And so in the moment it, it seems that the disciples are thinking, okay, if Elijah's going to come and immediately after that the kingdom, the is going to be established, there's going to be restoration. Well, we just saw Elijah. How are you going to establish your kingdom, restore it, if you still are going to suffer and die? These things don't make sense. And so Jesus responds to them in two different ways in verse 12. He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then he goes, but how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? What he's saying is, you're right, it does say Elijah will come first, but doesn't it also say, you're kind of leaving this part out, that the suffering servant, remember the Son of Man is the suffering servant, that Jesus is going to come and he is going to have to suffer and he is going to be treated with contempt. So kind of uh, rebuking them, don't just cherry pick your Old Testament text here. Yes, Elijah must come, but this also must happen. And then in verse 13, he makes more plainly what he means that Elijah will come. He says, but I tell you, Elijah has come. Matthew is very explicit in it. When he says Elijah has come, Matthew says he is referring to John the Baptist. 
Not that John the Baptist is Elijah reincarnated, but he has come in the spirit and the ministry of Elijah to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi of the Elijah-like person, the prophet who will come. And he has come. He has come as John the Baptist. And he has declared a message of restoration, but not one of a nation returning to glory and power, but a, a, a message of repentance, a message of a changed heart, a message of allegiance and a return back to Yahweh God. You see, it's not a physical restoration. It's a spiritual restoration that John has come, John the Baptist has come in the spirit of Elijah proclaiming. And so Jesus says he has come. And you see the end of our text. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Again, foreshadowing what happened to John. It's a foreshadow of what's going to happen to me. He's going to proclaim, but then he's going to be rejected. He is going to suffer, and he is going to die. And so he returns back to that theme. He gives them that glimpse of glory that every disciple needs to endure. That Christ is worth it, but he is awe-inspiring. But then he reminds them, but the way to glory is through suffering. The way of the discipleship is through suffering. All right. Our response, three things of application. I'll move through these quickly before we move to our table. How do we respond then to what we have seen here? For Peter, for the disciples, but we'll focus in on Peter's, I think it's his eyewitness account we're reading, was forever changed by this moment. The beauty of Christ was emblazoned upon his heart and his mind for this moment. And you start to see it in his writings in 1 Peter, 2 Peter. So three responses. The first is that we would endure hardship. The first response, endure hardship. Why? Because our suffering will be turned to glory. Listen to 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 13, as Peter writes later on, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter's got a foretaste of that glorious revelation. Endure in hardships. Again, I said it earlier, but the way to endure in hardship is not for me to get up here and look at you and say, try harder, do better, get over it. It's to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, to proclaim the beauty of Jesus Christ and that living for the here and now is such a foolish, foolish decision when you see the beauty of Christ. That enduring hardship now, facing some sense of rejection now, facing some sense of sacrifice now with living for Christ and others before yourself. That whatever sort of rejection or affirmation you're missing is not even to be compared with the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Endure hardship. Secondly, have confidence. God is with us. As Peter writes his second epistle, there's false teachers challenging that the suffering of the Christians proves that they're on a fool's mission believing in God, that their suffering undermines what they're saying. Second Peter 
chapter 1, starting in verse 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice borne to him by the majestic glory said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. His confidence rests, and it rests in this revelation of Christ's glory. Have confidence. Your suffering doesn't undermine the truth of your confession. Have confidence, for God is with us. And then lastly, the third response, endure hardship, have confidence, pursue worship. I'll close with this, but just a simple text. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, in order that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and do his marvelous bleach-white dazzling light. Pursue worship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word.